Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment Revealing the Hidden. In this program, we explore volumes 2 through 13 and we're in volume 9. We're finishing that up today through chapters 41 through 47. Typically, we'll study 10 chapters per class, and these chapters are fairly small, just kind of a half a page sometimes. But learning with the words of the Buddha will help you to understand what he actually taught so that then you're not believing what he taught, but you're learning, you're reflecting, and you're practicing on those teachings. And then you can independently verify them and see the truth as you practice what he taught, the condition of the mind gradually improves. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. Next week, we're going to be moving into volume 10, and we're going to be studying chapters 1 through 10. And you can get these books by going to buddhadailywisdom.com, and there's a button for free books. And from there, you can download all the books for free. You're welcome to take those files and go print them if you like. And you can also order them online through Amazon. Wherever you order through Amazon, they will have these books, and you'll be able to get a printed copy that way if you like. The way that we start our classes is we start with a meditation in order to prepare the mind to actually learn. Now, if you're on this path to enlightenment and you're doing the work that is required to get to enlightenment, you're probably meditating two or three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, or thereabouts, and building up to 30 minutes or more per session. This session here that we do before class is just kind of like a little top up, just to kind of prepare the mind for about 10 minutes or so that when you get involved into a learning situation or if you're going into a conversation with a friend or a business partner or a life partner or children, if you have any kind of things that you're handling that are really impactful and really important, you'd like your mind to be as clear as possible. So you can do these little five minute, 10 minute, 15 minute little top up meditations in order to prepare the mind for something like a learning event, for example, because then your mind will be performing more optimally. And as you go through a class like this, you'll be able to retain the teachings longer and you'll be able to then apply them better. But in a situation where it's a business meeting or a personal discussion or something like that, you'll be better at communicating and resolving whatever challenges you're facing as a result of having meditated a little bit prior to going in. And of course, if you're meditating two or three times a day, the way that the Buddha teaches in terms of he meditated three times a day, and you're doing that in these little top-ups as you need to, that's going to really help you. But if you're not doing the two to three times a day as the Buddha taught, these little top-ups are only going to have marginal 
help for you. So it's important that you look at this meditation practice in a comprehensive way, that you have these two or three meditation sessions that you're doing on a consistent, ongoing basis. And then where you need to, you can do these little top-up meditations. So I'd like to invite you to join for this meditation and then for the class to learn the teachings of the Buddha because we're going to be displaying the chapters and having a student actually read the chapter. After they read the chapter, I will teach and then I'll open up to any questions that you have. So if you'd like to join for meditation, go ahead and take a meditation position, either seated on the floor or in a chair. You should have your lower body nice and comfortable with your hands and arms comfortable in your lap. The upper body should be nice and erect during the meditation. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation because the meditation, you should actually be doing the work to train the mind. This isn't a time to just zone out and go to la la land for a while. It's actually time to really do the work of actually meditating. So we're going to do breathing mindfulness meditation together today. I'll start with a chant and you're welcome to join along with the chant if you like. And if not, then I'll be back after the chant to provide some light guidance to help ease you into meditation. Satawa Manu Sarang 
Just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just working to establish the breath. Breathing in, experiencing the full breath, and breathing out through the nose to experience the full breath. Just a nice, gradual, natural, steady breath. Breathing in and out. Fixate the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
to slowly make your way out of meditation. I'd like to welcome anyone who's joined us since we started meditation. Welcome to the class. We're going to switch over to the reading section and the study section of our class where we're going to be sharing the words of the Buddha through his actual words. And then as we read these, each student will take time to read a chapter, whoever would like to volunteer. And then after the chapter is read, I'll share any teachings on that chapter. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have on that specific chapter. So I'll turn things over to all of you, specifically Miranda, who's actually the moderator for today. And she'll be able to guide us through in terms of people volunteering and any questions that come in. As you would like to make 
any questions or ask any questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section. And then Miranda will be able to see that and ask your question during the class. If you are in Zoom and you would like to ask a question, you can either use the comment section or raise your hand electronically and you'll be called on so that you can ask your question directly. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys. Um, yes, sir, I will read the first chapter, uh, chapter 41. One who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Monks, one who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Consciousness monks, while standing, might stand engaged with form, based upon form, established upon form, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with feeling, based upon feeling, established upon feeling, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with perception, based upon perception, established upon perception, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with volitional formations, formations, choices, and decisions, based upon volitional formations, established upon volitional formations, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Monks, though someone might say, separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, I will make known the coming and going of consciousness, its passing away and rebirth. Its growth, increase, and expansion is impossible. Monks, if a monk has abandoned desire for the form aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned desire for the feeling aggregate, for the perception aggregate, for the volitional formations, choices, and decisions aggregate, for the consciousness aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, the mind is liberated. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. By being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana, enlightenment. One understands, destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this word engaged and disengaged is being used in replace of craving versus non-craving. So what the Buddha is essentially saying is one who has craving is unliberated. One who has eliminated craving or practicing non-craving and has eliminated that from the mind is liberated. And what liberation is, is this is the mind is free. Whenever there's craving, desire, attachment, the mind's yearning and longing, holding on, then the mind isn't free. It's not liberated. So by training the mind to let go and no longer have this yearning and longing, this craving, then the mind can gain this freedom from these strong feelings. 
So he's using this word engaged versus disengaged just as a different way to explain the teachings rather than continually use the same words over and over again. By using different words at different times, it can help a student to more understand what you're actually working towards. So if you think about this word engaged and disengaged, if you're in an argument and there's this argument where this person is being argumentative and trying to pick a fight with you and just constantly trying to argue, if you're engaged in that and you're arguing back, the mind is unliberated. But if you're disengaged from that argument and you're just like, all right, well, this person wants to argue, I'm not going to be arguing with them. I'm going to go over here or I'm just going to be quiet or I'm just going to ignore it or whatever you end up deciding to do. If you're disengaged from that argument, the mind can be said to be you know, more liberated in that situation. And when you eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, then the mind is actually liberated. So the Buddha is giving guidance here about the five aggregates and eliminating any kind of craving, desire, attachment or clinging to these five aggregates. The five aggregates are form, which is the physical form. There's feelings, which are what the mind experiences based on any situation that occurs. There's perceptions, which is the way that the mind perceives things, the way they seem to be, the beliefs, the opinions, the way the mind is perceiving a certain situation or a certain thing that's happening. Then there's these volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. And then there's the consciousness or the mind, the awareness that's in the mind. And the Buddha is essentially saying that as long as there's engagement or as long as there's craving, desire, attachment with these five aggregates where the mind is clinging and holding on, as long as the mind is engaged with these, holding on to this physical form, as long as the mind's holding on to these feelings that are in the mind, these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, as long as the mind is holding on to its perceptions, the way that things seem to be, your beliefs and opinions about the things around you, as long as you're holding on and clinging or engaged with these volitional formations of choices and decisions, as well as the mind itself, then the mind can't be liberated. So that's why the Buddha says here, he says, if somebody should say separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, that they will make known the coming and going of consciousness. This is like how the consciousness is reborn, that just being separated from these things is what's going to allow them to understand how the consciousness comes and goes. The Buddha is saying that's impossible because if somebody is just separated from these things, they haven't yet eliminated the craving, the desire, the clinging, the engagement that he's talking about. It's not just separating the mind from these things. It's fully training the mind to let these go and no longer cling and hold on to them. That's what's going to allow the mind to get liberated and then start to understand how beings come and go. So here he says, if a monk has abandoned desire for the form aggregate, the feeling aggregate, the perception aggregate, the volitional formations, and the consciousness aggregate. With the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. So there's no more renewed existence. Once you eliminate the clinging and craving to these five aggregates, then there's no longer any support 
for the establishing of consciousness. There can no longer be another rebirth if you've eliminated the craving and the clinging to the five aggregates because there's no more fuel to spark a new fire. So one of the ways to think about rebirth is if you have a fire that's burning and there's logs and these logs are burning, this is the fuel that's creating the fire and allowing the fire to burn. And then if there's a spark that comes off of that fire and now the wind carries it and now that spark lands into a new pile of leaves, it's going to create a new fire because this wind carried it and that was the fuel that it needed to carry this spark into the new pile of leaves and create this new fire where if you don't have that wind to carry the spark or you don't have the logs in the fire to begin with and you extinguish this fire completely then there's no sparks that come off of the fire to create a new fire so what you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment is you're eliminating the three fires you're extinguishing the three fires of craving, anger, and ignorance. Because when you extinguish the fire, it's completely cut off, as the Buddha is explaining here. When craving is completely cut off, there's no more fuel. That fire has been extinguished. Then there isn't going to be a spark to light the next fire. So that's what he's saying here, that when consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, the mind is liberated. So if there's no longer any craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, then there's not going to be a spark to create a new existence. And therefore, what you'll experience in this life, having eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, is the mind will be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. And when you experience that for one, two, three years, then you'll know that the mind's liberated and you're experiencing those peaceful, joyful mental states, and there will no longer be any rebirth into a future life. And the Buddha is explaining that here where he says, with the mind being liberated, the mind is steady. Being steady, the mind is content. Being content, the mind is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains enlightenment. So you'll see that as you progress, that an enlightened mind gets to the point where nothing agitates you whatsoever. Nothing causes any annoyance or irritation whatsoever. And having experienced that and knowing that you're experiencing that and all the work that you did in order to get to that mental state where you're not experiencing even the slightest agitation or annoyance, then you will know, or the Buddha says, one understands destroyed his birth. Because you will know that all the teachings that you learned all that you reflected on and you practiced led to this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy where the mind is now liberated, no longer experiencing any discontentedness, you will know at that point, okay, there's no longer going to be any more rebirth. So destroyed is birth. There's no longer going to be any more existences where you will come back and experience discontentedness all over again. Once you attain enlightenment, that's a permanent mental state from that time forward, you will no longer experience any discontentedness in this life. And there's not going to be rebirth in the cycle of rebirth for you to experience it in a future life. So that's why the Buddha says the holy life has been lived. This last life, if you attain enlightenment in this life, then you've lived this holy life. You've purified the mind. You've 
gained the goal. You've attained this ultimate goal of enlightenment because you've lived this holy life. Now, before you got on this path, before you attained enlightenment, yeah, you were doing some unwholesome things just like everyone else. But as you get on this path and you start clearing up the condition of the mind and purifying the mind, purifying your conduct, then you've led this holy life, whether it's the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. In the Buddhist case, it was 45 years that he spent from the time he attained enlightenment until he actually died. He spent 45 years in this mental state of enlightenment. So the holy life has been lived and you can experience that same thing. What had to be done has been done, right? You did the work. You applied the dedication, the diligence to do the work and purify the mind, train the mind, gradually moving to this enlightened mental state. There is no more for this state of existence, that the mind will no longer experience any renewed existence. And you'll know that as you progress further and further, and you'll see that the mind gets to this enlightened mental state. Because if the Buddha is explaining this 2,500 years ago, and then you're able to experience it today, and your experiences match to what the Buddha talked about 2,500 years ago, you'll be able to observe that your mind has experienced this enlightened mental state that he's describing. And even if you haven't observed your past lives yet by that point, because not every enlightened being will have observed past lives, but even if you purify the mind and you get to enlightenment and your experiences are what the Buddha explained, even having not observed your past lives, you will know, wow, the Buddhist teachings led me to this enlightened mental state. Even though you haven't seen past lives, you will know that you're no longer going to be reborn again because everything else the Buddha taught you led you to this enlightened mental state. Therefore, he didn't just slip in the cycle of rebirth stuff. You will know at that point that everything else that you learned and practiced led you to this enlightened mental state. And you'll have confidence that having experienced this enlightened mental state for a couple of years and it's continuing for the rest of your life, you'll know that there's no longer going to be any rebirth or no longer this future state of existence. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, I want to make sure that I'm understanding the engagement and disengagement in uh, volition, uh, choices and decisions. I mean, that means that we're obviously going to be making choices and decisions, but we're not going to have a craving or attachment to those choices and decisions, meaning that, you know, if we say, oh, you know, I'm going to plan for a walk today, but I'm not like craving that walk, right? So that if the walk doesn't happen, I don't have this attachment to it. Exactly. So you'll still have choices and decisions that you'll make, but you'll learn not to cling to them, that you can kind of make a decision now about something that's going to happen three months from now or three weeks from now or three hours from now, but you're not going to cling to it, that you're willing to let that go because as impermanence happens, even though you've made a decision that I'm going to take a walk today, three hours from now, something might change and it might start pouring down raining and you're like, ah, I can't take my walk today. All right, that's fine. I'll do it later when it's not raining or I'll do it another day when it's not raining rather than sit there and cling to this walk and now become discontent because the mind is holding on to this choice and decision. 
The same thing happens oftentimes when we look to the future. We might have certain plans or certain ideas, things for three months from now, six months from now. We start making decisions and then we get closer to that event or closer to that situation and the mind is unwilling to let go of a decision that you've made three months ago or six months ago. And even though things have changed because of impermanence and new information has come to you, if the mind is clinging and holding on to this decision, now you're not making the best decision in that situation because the decision that we've made was three months or six months ago. Whereas if we're willing to let go of this decision based on this new information that we have, now we can make a better, wiser decision that's going to produce more wholesome outcomes for us. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear that there are any more questions at this time, sir. All right, let's move on to chapter 42. All right, uh, let's go to Donnie to read chapter 42, please. Without excitement, the three underlying tendencies are abandoned. Monks, depending on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the tree is contact. If contact as condition there arises, a feeling, felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Dependent on the ear and sounds, ear consciousness arises, a meeting of the tree is contact. If contact as condition there arises a feeling felt as pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Depending on the nose and odors, nose consciousness arises, the meeting of the tree is contact. If contact as condition there arises a feeling felt as pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Depending on the tongue and flavors, tongue consciousness arises. The meeting of the trees contact, if contact as condition there arises a feeling felt as painful or pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant. Depending on the body and physical objects, body consciousness arises. The meeting of the tree is contact. Contact as condition there arises a feeling felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. Dependent on the mind and mental objects, mind consciousness arises. The meeting of the tree is contact. The contact as condition there arises a feeling felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. When one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one does not excite it, welcome it and remain holding on it, then the underlying tendency to crave does not lie within one. When one is touched by a painful feeling, if one does not sorrow, grief, and have displeasure, does not beat beating one's breast and become strong, then the underlying tendency to aversion does not lie within one. When one is touched by neither painful nor pleasant feeling, if one understands as it actually is, the cause, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in regard to that feeling, then the underlying tendency to ignorance or unknowing or true reality does not lie within one. Monks, that one shall hear and now make an end of discontentedness by abandoning the underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings by abolishing the other ten lying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings by destroying the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings by abandoning ignorance and arousing true wisdom this is possible 
All right, thank you, Donnie. So here, the Buddha is first talking about the internal sense base and the external sense base. The internal sense bases are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Those are all the internal sense bases. And the external sense bases are forms. That's what the eye sees, are physical forms. Sounds, that's what the ear hears. Odors is what the nose smells. Flavors is what the tongue tastes. Physical objects is what the body experiences through contact. And then there's mental objects like things like ill will or complacency. We also have various ideas and thoughts that come into the mind as well. These are what's called the six internal sense bases and the six external sense bases. Internal meaning in the body, external meaning outside, which is what the internal sense base ends up coming in contact with the external sense base. And then there's this eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. What consciousness is, is awareness. So when the eye sees a certain form, then there's awareness of that form in the mind. That's called eye consciousness. But these three things coming together is what the Buddha calls contact. So now there's contact from the eyes to the physical form that it's seeing. And now there's this awareness of it in the mind. And now that's called contact. Same thing with the ear. There's the ear and then there's a sound. And when the mind becomes aware of that sound, now there's contact. Those three things of ear, sound, awareness of that sound in the mind, this is now called contact. And we could go through each of these as the same way. This is really helpful for you because this is how pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant arise, is that there's going to be some contact through the six sense bases. There's going to be this internal sense base that has contact with an external sense base. And now when the mind becomes aware of that, that consciousness or awareness, there's that contact and now there's going to arise a conditioned pleasant feeling, a conditioned painful feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. And as you know, you don't believe the Buddhist teachings. You learn them, reflect, and practice. You can see this for yourself. Anytime you look at something, like right now I'm looking at the computer, the eye is seeing the physical form of the computer, and now the mind is aware that I'm looking at a computer right? And thou, I have contact with this computer. And then if I heard a sound, I heard a car just go by our house, our village, the ear heard a sound and the mind became aware of it. So now there was contact with that sound. And now if there's this contact, now there's going to arise if there's central desire, because remember this book is all about central desire, understanding that and eliminating it from the mind, is if there's central desire where there's craving to hear certain agreeable sounds or smell certain agreeable odors and so forth, then the mind's going to arise these pleasant feelings. And then if there's these disagreeable sounds or these disagreeable odors that the mind isn't interested in, when you have contact with that, 
now the mind's going to have these painful feelings. And then there's these neither painful nor pleasant. So the Buddha down here is explaining when one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one does not excite in it, welcome it, and remain holding on to it, then the underlying tendency to crave does not lie within one. So if you experience contact through these six sense bases and you're like, wow, I really enjoy this view or wow, I really enjoy that sound. That's a really nice sound or that's a nice smell. That's a nice odor or wow, this tastes really good or wow, that fabric on the skin feels really nice or oh, I like having those wholesome thoughts. These are the six sense bases. The Buddha is saying, OK, you're going to have this contact through the six sense bases. But if you don't excite in it, if you don't welcome it, if you don't remain holding on to it, craving these pleasant feelings, then craving doesn't lie within one. It doesn't lie within you. So what you're working to do is eliminate this yearning, this longing, this chasing after the objects of your affection where you want these pleasant feelings based on some condition of contact through the six sense bases that you understand more and more that the problem is that these six sense bases, the mind is yearning and longing. It's chasing after the objects of its affection through these six sense bases, wanting these pleasant feelings. And as long as the mind excites in those contacts, as long as it welcomes that, as long as it remains holding on to that, then the mind's going to be shaken up and discontent. But what the Buddha is saying is that when this underlying tendency to crave does not exist in the mind, then the mind is more liberated. He's saying by the time we get to the end of this, that you're going to reach to enlightenment if you eliminate this craving for these pleasant feelings through these six sense bases. Because the way that the unenlightened mind works is that when it's longing and yearning through these six sense bases and it gets the objects of its affection, then through that contact, it experiences pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get the objects of its affection, having this contact through the six sense bases, then it's going to experience these painful feelings because now it's experiencing this not agreeable contact, it's experiencing this disagreeable contact. So that's where the mind then has sorrow or grief or displeasure. The mind becomes distraught. And then when the mind is experiencing those painful feelings, the unenlightened mind has this tendency to have aversion where you push somebody away or you push a situation away thinking that this is going to solve the problem. That if you push this person out of your life, you in the unenlightened mind, if you don't have the wisdom to understand, you're going to think that this person is causing your painful feelings. And you think if you push this person out of your life, that that solves the problem. But what you learn as part of this path to enlightenment is that's not what the actual problem is. The actual problem is the craving. The mind is craving for this agreeable contact through the six sense bases. And when it doesn't get that agreeable contact and there's this disagreeable contact, it's the painful feelings that arise based on your craving, your own craving. So the Buddha says that when this underlying tendency to not have aversion doesn't exist in the mind, 
then this person is essentially going to get to enlightenment because they're not pushing away these uncomfortable, painful feelings that once somebody's mind gets to liberation, there is no longer any painful feelings whatsoever. Because you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, the mind is no longer basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. Then because you're not chasing pleasant feelings, then the mind is protected and it can't experience painful feelings either. So this tendency to have aversion and push things away, having this anger, this hatred, this ill will, this bitterness, it doesn't exist in the mind because the mind can be content with whatever, satisfied with what is. Where as long as there's this agreeable contact that the mind craves, then it's only a matter of time before you have this disagreeable contact and that's going to arise painful feelings in the mind. So when you get rid of this craving for pleasant feelings and agreeable contact, then you also don't have this disagreeable aspect in the mind where you no longer will experience painful feelings. And the Buddha is explaining that as part of gaining the wisdom that when you understand the cause, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in regard to that feeling, then the underlying tendency to ignorance does not exist in the mind. So what he's talking about is once you have the wisdom of what's causing the pleasant feelings, what's causing the painful feelings, and you understand how these feelings disappear, and you understand this gratification of where the mind is longing for gratification, permanent satisfaction through these sense spaces, and you understand the danger of allowing the mind to do that, and you understand the escape of how to train the mind to no longer do that, then you have the wisdom. You no longer have this ignorance and unknowing of true reality. So let's talk for a moment about the cause, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape. I've got that down here where the cause of what's causing these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, is craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness. That's what's causing these feelings. The disappearance of these feelings is because of the universal truth of impermanence, that these things arise, they change, and then they fade away because they're conditioned feelings. The gratification is understanding that the unenlightened mind's fetter, taints, or pollution of central desire, that the mind is constantly trying to be gratified. The mind is wanting this permanent satisfaction. It craves and yearns through these six sense bases that it wants these pleasant feelings and it's chasing after the objects of its affection. This is the fetter, taints, or pollution of central desire. And then the danger of allowing the mind to continue to have this central desire is that you're going to experience discontentedness. You're going to continue to experience these conditioned pleasant feelings, these conditioned painful feelings, and these conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So as long as you allow this fetter, taint, or pollution of sensual desire to exist in the mind, and you haven't trained the mind to eliminate it, then you're going to continue to experience discontentedness because the mind is not liberated. 
So the way to escape all of this, escape this whole cycle that the mind is constantly on, yearning and longing through these sense bases, trying to get gratification through central desire, is to learn, reflect, and practice the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the training that the mind needs in order to train it to no longer have this craving desire attachment. There's eight aspects of this path that I teach as part of the group learning program to help you deeply understand this path to enlightenment, this path to purification of the mind. So the escape or the escape hatch, the escape door to get out of this constant discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha is explaining that someone who understands this cause, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape in regard to those conditioned feelings, then this tendency to have ignorance doesn't reside in the mind because there's now wisdom that you understand these things deeply, not just in the way that I explain them in summary form, but you deeply understand these teachings and you've been practicing them on a continuous ongoing basis. And when the mind eliminates craving, anger, and ignorance, or these three poisons that the Buddha is talking about, this craving, we also call aversion, we call it anger, hatred, ill will. And when it eliminates this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, now the mind is purified of these three poisons or three unwholesome roots or three fires. You've put out the fire. You've extinguished these fires that are burning. And when you've extinguished those fires, the Buddha says, okay, that one shall here and now make an end to discontentedness. That's the mind getting to enlightenment. And the way that the mind gets to enlightenment is by abandoning craving for pleasant feelings, by abolishing aversion towards painful feelings, and by destroying this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, gaining wisdom. That's how the mind arises this true wisdom. And by arising that true wisdom and getting to final knowledge where you have deeply seen the truth in these teachings and you're deeply practicing them, you've purified the mind of craving, anger, and ignorance or craving, aversion, and this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. When you've accomplished that, now the mind has gotten to this enlightened mental state where it's now made an end to discontentedness, no longer experiencing these conditioned feelings where the mind's going up and down and up and down and up and down. Instead, the mind's perfectly tuned to the middle where it's now peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer being shaken up and unsteady based on these impermanent conditions that are happening around you. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. I'd like to check my understanding. So I, I believe I understand the conditioned feelings, but there are also unconditioned feelings, and this would be um, feeling content with joy. Is that, that right? Am I right about that? Serene, these kinds of things. Yeah, you might think of those as unconditioned feelings. I think of them as unconditioned mental states because that peacefulness is just a mental state that's always there. There's nothing that's creating that peacefulness or that calmness or that serenity or that contentedness or that joy is just always there. 
So I think of them more as mental states rather than individual feelings. Okay, thank you. That helps. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, we call, and we call them unconditioned because these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, those are conditioned on some impermanent condition. So if it's sunny outside, oh, I feel pleasant feelings, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm elated. And now it's raining outside and now the mind is sad or angered or disgruntled. So these are conditioned feelings because those pleasant feelings are conditioned on, is it sunny outside? That's the condition. Oh, it's sunny, that condition is met. So now I have pleasant feelings. But that condition isn't permanent, that it's going to permanently be sunny. So that's why when it rains, now there's this conditioned, painful feeling where now the mind is sad or angry or frustrated because the mind is basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition where once you purify the mind of having this craving, this aversion and this ignorance, and now you've arisen this wisdom in the mind and you've deeply trained the mind, if it's sunny outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If it's raining outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's no change to the condition of an enlightened mind because all the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up have been eliminated. They've been purified. They've been eliminated from the mind. So you experience these unconditioned mental states where the mind is just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Could I ask a follow-up question? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. Um, There are times when one just reacts to a physical sensation. Um, You stub your toe, you feel pain, perhaps tears come to the eyes. But it doesn't seem to me that that's the same as craving to always not stub your toe (laughs) you're just you're you're having a physical biological reaction to something Mm -hmm. would that be a way to understand this or you know sometimes there are just physical reactions that our body makes that are not really um related to grasping or clinging or everything that's happening with the body is coming from the mind one of our Mm -hmm. chapters today is talking about physical pain And we're going to get into that in more detail. But just using your example, if somebody stumps their toe and they feel that physical pain in the toe and now they start functioning unskillfully, maybe they cuss, they swear, they knock things over or whatever someone ends up doing. In this situation, the mind is craving for permanent comfort in the body. And because of that craving for permanent comfort, now the mind goes to this aversion because it's feeling this physical pain with the stumped toe. But now because the mind is craving permanent comfort, there's this mental anguish that occurs that is secondary from the physical pain. There's this physical pain and then there's this mental pain. And what you can do in the enlightened mental state is you'll only experience the physical pain. You won't experience the mental anguish and the mental pain. But in the untrained mind, in the mind that isn't yet enlightened, when you stump the toe, then the mind is craving for permanent comfort in the body. So that's where somebody can act unskillfully. If there's crying, if, if there's just some tears that come out of the eye, then yeah, that can be a physical reaction from the the body 
But once the mind becomes discontent and it has this mental anguish and there's even unskillful conduct that's part of that, that's because of the craving and that's because of the aversion and that's because of the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. An untrained mind that stumps their toe, they're going to feel the physical pain and they're also going to feel the mental pain. An enlightened being, a trained mind, they're going to feel the physical pain, but they're not going to have the mental anguish when they stump their toe. So one might just think, oh, I stubbed my toe and then go on and everything is fine. Yeah, they might stump their toe and be like, ow, that really hurts. Wow, that's pretty painful or, you know, whatever they say or whatever they might do or, you know, they're going to feel the physical pain, but they're going to know that that physical pain is impermanent and they know that they experience that physical pain based on their own choices that it was their choices that led to that physical pain and allowing the mind to be shaken up because of this impermanent condition it doesn't benefit them so they're not going to allow the mind to experience that mental anguish because the the mind has been too well trained you, that it can't experience that mental uh, anguish my internet connections coming in and out. I think you guys are losing me at some different times. Yes, sir. We are. It's a little bit choppy. Um, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her question. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, so, Teacher, I'm actually kind of looking for guidance in this because I'm I'm wondering if I'm um, experiencing aversion. So, the, I go through periods of times where I have this uh joyfulness this um uh peacefulness um and i kind of feel unfaltered either way but then in you know a moment of you know um you know through one of the doors of the eyes the ears and nose i suffered this i well i realize that i'm suffering some kind of discontentedness and then i can feel um this aversion coming uh, towards that discontentedness, and I'm and I'm wondering if um, by by having that aversion, if I am, if, if there should be something else I should be doing to not experience aversion to discontentedness. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm being clear. Yeah, let me talk about two different things here. So first of all, aversion is when the mind is experiencing painful feelings. The mind falsely attributes those painful feelings to an individual or a situation outside of your own mind. And then you push that thing away, thinking that that's going to solve the problem. That's aversion. What you might be experiencing is something that I call despising discontentedness. And this is actually really helpful. That when discontentedness arises in the mind, it's like, oh, I despise this. I'm not interested in having this discontentedness whatsoever. Let me fix this. So that's different than aversion. Aversion, it comes from wrong view that the individual thinks, mistakenly believes, has this misperception, this misunderstanding, this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, thinking that these painful feelings that are being experienced are because of somebody else or something else. It doesn't understand that it's actually craving, desire, attachment. And because the mind has this misperception, it pushes this person or situation away. That's what aversion is. It sounds like what you might be having is where when you experience 
painful feelings. It's like, ah, I don't really like this. I'm interested in getting away from this. Let me fix this problem. I call that despising discontentedness. And it's actually really helpful that wherever you see discontentedness coming up in the mind, you're not interested in this whatsoever. And you're willing to take whatever action is necessary to eliminate that discontentedness. That's being determined, dedicated, and diligent, that when you see the painful feelings arise in the mind, you now start taking action to eliminate those from the mind, cut those off and let them go. Thank you, Teacher David. That was very helpful, very clarifying. Thank you for your guidance. You're welcome. It appears there are no more questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's move to the next chapter, chapter 43. Okay, we can go to um, Alaska to read chapter 43. Freed from discontentedness. Monks, one who does not seek excitement in form, does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in feeling, does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in perception, does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in volitional formation, choices, decisions, does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in consciousness, does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in discontentedness, I say, is freed from discontentedness. Monks, one who does not seek excitement in the eyes, does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in the ear, does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in the nose, does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in the tongue, does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in the body, does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in the mind does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in discontentedness, I say, is freed from discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in forms does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in sound does not seek excitement in discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in odors does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement and flavors does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in physical objects does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement in mental objects does not seek excitement and discontentedness. One who does not seek excitement and discontentedness, I say, free from discontentedness. All right. Thank you, sir. So what the Buddha is explaining here is that when the mind has this central desire, of course, then the mind's going to seek this excitement. It's seeking these pleasant feelings. And as long as the mind is seeking excitement in form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, the mind is unliberated. It's going to continue to experience discontentedness because the seeking for excitement is the craving. That seeking part is the craving. The excitement part is the discontentedness. So as long as the mind is longing and yearning and holding on, clinging to form, feeling, perception, 
volitional formations in consciousness, there's going to continue to be discontentedness. So the Buddha is saying one who doesn't seek excitement, essentially what he's saying is one who doesn't have craving, one who doesn't cling to form, feeling, perception, volitional formations in consciousness is freed from discontentedness. And then related to the sixth sense basis, he's saying the same thing. One who does not crave these pleasant feelings through the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, he says they're free from discontentedness because they're no longer yearning and longing through these six sense bases for these pleasant feelings. And this is where people really need to look very closely because when we use that word suffering that some people use in the Buddhist community, it doesn't explain the full problem that the Buddha was describing. But when you understand this word discontentedness or discontented or discontent, and you understand conditioned pleasant feelings, then you understand that that's the real crux of the problem, is that the mind is craving, it's yearning, it's longing. It wants these pleasant feelings through these six sense bases. And as long as it's yearning for these conditioned pleasant feelings, chasing after these temporary feelings of pleasantness, then it's going to continue to experience the painful feelings. What people are oftentimes trying to do is if they're trying to eliminate suffering, then they're working on eliminating these painful feelings and they're just focused on the painful feelings. But you can't eliminate the painful feelings if you don't understand what the real problem is, is that the mind's craving these pleasant feelings through these six sense bases. So the mind will never experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy as long as it's holding on to these temporary conditioned pleasant feelings. So to get to this permanent joy where the mind is just always joyful, you've got to eliminate the clinging, the craving, the yearning, the longing, the seeking of excitement through these six sense bases. Because as long as the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection through the six sense bases, wanting those pleasant feelings, then it's going to always come back to these painful feelings at some point. So you've got to cut off the mind chasing after these pleasant feelings where you feel the mind pulling and longing and yearning for these pleasant feelings and chasing after the objects of its affection, where you see that occurring, that's why you cut it off and let it go. And that's why you train in meditation through breathing mindfulness meditation to cut that off and let it go. Because when you can get a handle on that, where the mind's chasing after the pleasant feelings, then you'll experience less and less painful feelings. And over time, as you knock down your craving, desire, attachment, where the mind's chasing after these pleasant feelings, then you'll get to a point where the mind is no longer experiencing the painful feelings. So when you understand this whole process of what's happening with the mind, that's why the Buddha is explaining it to you so that you understand this process. And now you can implement the solution to fix it. Yes, there's this breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, training the mind to let go. But you also have to be observant of the mind. You have to be watchful over the mind. You have to have this mindfulness or this awareness of mind at all times during your day that where you see the mind chasing after these pleasant feelings, 
you restrain it, you pull it back, you cut that off and let it go, and you don't allow the mind to keep chasing after those pleasant feelings. Because as long as you're chasing after those temporary pleasant feelings, you won't experience the permanent joy that the mind can experience by no longer chasing after those things. But the thing is, is that when you train the mind to no longer chase after the pleasant feelings, now the mind can just have this permanent joy where rather than chasing after the chocolate cake and wanting the chocolate cake, and then when the chocolate cake isn't available, the mind gets this anger, this frustration. Instead, you just show up at the restaurant. Do you guys have chocolate cake? Oh, you do. Okay, sure. I like to order that piece of chocolate cake. And now you just enjoy the chocolate cake, fully realizing that this experience is impermanent. And the next time you come, they might not have that chocolate cake. And you can be completely content with that. So as long as you're not seeking excitement through the tongue for the chocolate cake, then you can enjoy it for what it is when it's available. And then when it's not available, you're completely fine with that too. This is where the mind can be satisfied with what is because it's no longer having this craving or yearning and longing through these sense bases chasing after the objects of its affection. In this example, chocolate cake. But there's many different things that the unenlightened mind is chasing after. And as long as the mind is allowed to chase after this stuff, you might get the objects of your affection in some situations and you get pleasant feelings. But in other situations, you're not going to get the objects of your affection because those things are impermanent. So that's where you're going to introduce these painful feelings into the mind. So you stop this whole cycle, this whole process by cutting off and letting go of this craving, desire, attachment, chasing after these pleasant feelings. And that's where the Buddha says, one who does not seek excitement in discontentedness, I say, is freed from discontentedness. So if you're not seeking this conditioned excitement, then you can eliminate this discontentedness all over. There's no longer these conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It appears there are no questions on this chapter, sir. Okay. So now we'll go to chapter 44, which is about the physical pain that we were starting to talk about with Jan. This will help bring it to your understanding a bit more, and then we can talk about it and help you see how an untrained mind is going to function versus a trained mind. Yes, sir. Uh, Jan is set to read chapter 44. Thank you, Miranda. Transcending physical pain by avoiding mental pain. Monks, the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The instructed noble disciple too feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Therein, monks, what is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling? Venerable sir, our teachings are rooted in the perfectly enlightened one, guided by the perfectly enlightened one, taken refuge in the perfectly enlightened one. It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one would clear up the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, the monks will remember it. Then listen and attend closely, monks. I will speak. Yes, venerable sir, the monks replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this, monks, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, 
grieves and has displeasure. He weeps, beating his breast and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, he has aversion towards it. When he, he has aversion towards painful feelings, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings lies behind this. Being contacted by a painful feeling, he seeks excitement and sensual pleasure. For one re what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. When he seeks excitement and sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings lies behind this. He does not understand as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of these feelings. When he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing of true reality in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings lies behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it attached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it attached. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it attached. This monks is called an uninstructed worldling who is attached to birth, aging and death, who is attached to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair, who is attached to discontentedness, I say. Monks, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve or have displeasure. He does not weep, beating his breast and becoming distraught. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, but they would not strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by one dart only. So too, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, he has no aversion towards it. Since he has no aversion towards painful feelings, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings does not lie behind this. Being contacted by a painful feeling, he does not seek excitement and sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from painful feelings other than sensual pleasure. Since he does not seek excitement and sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. He understands as it really is the cause and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. Since he understands these things, underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing of true reality in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. This monk is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging, and death. Who is detached from sorrow, grief, pain, pleasure, and despair. Detached from discontentedness, I say. This monk is the distinction, the disparity, 
the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. The wise one, learned, does not feel the pleasant and painful mental feeling. This is the great difference between the wise one and the worldling. For the learned one who has comprehended the teachings, who clearly sees this world and the next, desirable things do not provoke his mind. Towards the undesired, he has no aversion. For him, the attraction and repulsion no longer exist. Both have been extinguished, brought to an end, having known the dust-free, sorrowless state, the transcender of existence rightly understands. All right. Thank you, Jan. So this teaching, this discourse, really goes into a lot of detail about physical pain and how to avoid the mental pain. So there's a couple of things to talk about first is this uninstructed worldling that the Buddha talks about. This is essentially him talking about someone who's off the path to enlightenment, someone who's not learning his teachings. A worldling is someone who's craving and holding on to the world and all the things in the world. They're uninstructed. They haven't learned and practiced these teachings. A noble disciple or an instructed noble disciple. This is someone who's deeply learning and practicing his teachings. A noble disciple isn't necessarily enlightened yet. They're just in the process and they deeply understand the teachings because they have this instruction. So the Buddha is talking about and contrasting how a person who's off the path to enlightenment and doesn't understand these teachings is going to experience physical pain versus someone who's instructed in his teachings and deeply understands these teachings and how they experience this pain differently. And what he's explaining is he's explaining this uninstructed worldling who's off this path to enlightenment, a non-practitioner. He's explaining how this non-practitioner experiences pain as if somebody's throwing two different darts at them. The first dart is this physical pain that occurs. And everyone's going to experience physical pain, even an instructed noble disciple or a deeply practicing practitioner. They're going to experience that physical pain. That's that first dart. But then this uninstructed worldling, this non-practitioner, they're going to experience this second dart. Because in that situation, they're going to get this mental anguish. And the reason why the mental anguish and this despair and this grief is arising in the mind is because when you experience that first dart of the painful feelings associated with the physical pain, the only thing that an uninstructed worldling knows how to do is crave for pleasant feelings. Through central desire, an uninstructed worldling, a non-practitioner, when they feel the physical pain, like we talked about having the toe stumped, the only way that somebody knows how to get rid of that feeling that's arising, that painful physical feeling, the only way that they know how to get rid of that is to crave for pleasant feelings through longing and yearning through the sense spaces. And that's why now, because of the physical pain, there's now going to be this mental anguish that arises in the mind because the mind is craving these permanent pleasant feelings. And this is going to actually exacerbate the painful physical pain that is going to exacerbate that because once you feel the physical pain, now there's going to be this second aspect of mental anguish because the mind is longing and yearning for central pleasures through the sense bases. That's what an uninstructed whirling is going to experience. 
But the Buddha says an instructed noble disciple, someone who's deeply learning and practicing his teachings, they're going to understand this whole process. They're going to understand this first physical pain that comes and they know how to escape that because their mind has been deeply trained that now when they experience that physical pain, the instructed noble disciple isn't going to grasp or long or yearn for pleasant feelings through craving desire attachment. Instead, a noble disciple is going to understand that this physical pain is impermanent. All I need to do is remain calm and peaceful And this physical pain is going to dissipate on its own. But the problem with the uninstructed worldling is it's grasping for these pleasant feelings through the central desire. And that's what creates even more problems because now the mind has this mental anguish because it's grasping for these pleasant feelings. But an instructed noble disciple, someone who's deeply learned in these teachings, they're not going to grasp for those pleasant feelings and long and yearn for them. So therefore, they're only going to experience the physical pain. They're not going to experience the mental anguish associated with the physical pain. So that's what he's explaining here, because there's no more aversion to these painful feelings that an instructed noble disciple knows that whenever painful feelings arise, we're talking about physical pain here. These painful feelings of the physical pain, they're impermanent. It's only a matter of time before they go away. Let's just make some wise decisions in order to have that go away. So if someone stumps their toe, they might stop. They might rub their toe a little bit. Who knows? Depends on you know the situation and how much physical pain is really occurring, but you're not going to see the mental anguish as part of that physical pain. And that's what you ultimately can get to is because the instructed noble disciple understands the escape from these painful feelings. And it's not to chase after central pleasures. An instructed noble disciple understands that the central pleasures is actually the problem. That as long as the mind is craving and yearning for permanent pleasant feelings, that's the problem. So in this situation where an instructed noble disciple experiences physical pain, their mind is not going to crave central pleasures. Instead, they're just going to reside with the physical pain. They're going to know that it's impermanent. If they need to make wise decisions to get medical care or whatever else needs to occur, then they're going to make those wise decisions and just fix the problem. And knowing that this is going to be impermanent, it's just a matter of time before those feelings of physical pain are gone. And because an instructed noble disciple does not seek excitement in central pleasures, then the underlying tendency to crave for those pleasant feelings, it's not there. So therefore, there's only the physical pain that is experienced see what else can we talk about here. The Buddha was basically saying all of that here as well. He's talking about the wise one, meaning the instructed noble disciple. They're learned. They do not feel the pleasant feeling and painful feeling. They don't feel that because their mind has been deeply trained, right? And he says, this is the great difference between the wise one and the worldling. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, Sir, when you're speaking about this 
question comes to mind of whether or not the changes in how one experiences physical pain, can they ever become detrimental to that being? For instance, if someone, even before being on the path, had a very high pain threshold, and now they're not experiencing that second dart, that mental anguish, when they experience bodily pain, and that makes the bodily pain seem less, does that ever get to the point where it becomes dangerous to the body of that being? No, because a person who's gotten to that point, they will observe the physical pain, and then that physical pain is there for a reason. It's telling you that there's something wrong. So, for example, if a uninstructed worldling stand too close to a fire and they felt the heat, you know, they're going to react however they're going to react. And oftentimes there's unskillful conduct. There's cussing, there's discontentedness, maybe there's flailing of the body, maybe they even trip and fall and make the situation worse uh, because there's this physical pain and then there's this mental anguish as well. But a person who's instructed and has deep practice, maybe even if we're describing enlightened being, they stand too close to a fire. They feel the heat and the sensation of heat on their body like, huh, okay, let me move. And now they're going to move the body away from that heat. So that physical pain is actually there for a reason to help the mind know that you need to take corrective action here, that there's something wrong. The physical body is feeling this physical pain. You need to take corrective action. So this is why even when the mind is enlightened in this life, you will never be able to escape physical pain entirely. Your physical pain will be diminished and the mind will no longer relate to this physical pain in the same way as it did when you were off the path to enlightenment. But you're always going to experience this physical pain because the mind and the body are together in this life. You can't eliminate the attachment that the mind has to the physical body until death. So that's why we call, when you get enlightened in this life, we call it enlightenment. But when you die, being an enlightened being, we call this final enlightenment or final nibbana, because this is where the body and the mind separate. Because as long as you have enlightenment in the mind, you'll experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy for the rest of this life. But you'll still experience physical pain if the body is injured in any way or it's somehow coming in contact with something that's causing physical pain. You're going to still experience that physical pain, but it's going to be very diminished. But once this being has attained enlightenment and then the body dies and the body and the mind separate, now there's not even physical pain anymore. That's what we call final enlightenment or final nibbana. But it doesn't become detrimental because it's actually helpful. Because when you experience physical pain in the unenlightened mind, in the uninstructed worldling's mind, when you experience physical pain, now the mind being shaken up, having this mental anguish, you can oftentimes make decisions that create a worse situation. Like I said, standing too close to a fire, now you react negatively and with a very exaggerated reaction now you might trip and fall and have all kinds of problems you might even fall into the fire if it's a bonfire or something but with this diminished amount of physical pain 
now you can experience the pain, know that it's there, and then with equanimity, this calmness, this composure, you can just make wise decisions to now put the body in a better situation where it's no longer experiencing this physical pain anymore. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, so, Teacher David, as as I'm as this body and mind is sitting here listening um, to this guidance and this teachings, I'm experiencing excitement and this this lightness in my head. And my question to you is that, as we speak about not allowing this excitement to evolve, is this a, an excitement that I need to? apply equanimity to or is this an excitement that is something that should um, be cultivated more embraced you shouldn't welcome this excitement using the language of the buddha since we're studying the words of the buddha you shouldn't welcome it you shouldn't excite in it you shouldn't invite it into the mind so where you observe this condition excitement arising you got to cut it off and let it go so the condition is you're learning these teachings, and this is very common, the Buddha talks about this, is that when you investigate his teachings, he talks about this energy that springs up in the mind, and he talks about this joy that springs up in the mind as a result of investigating his teachings. And you even need to cut that off and let that go too, where you can no longer base your inner feelings on the condition of learning these teachings. So where you observe that conditioned, pleasant feeling of excitement arising, cut that off and let it go. Don't welcome it into the mind. Thank you. Yep, this is where you can just reside in the middle with equanimity where it's like, oh, wow, this is really deep. The Buddha is very profound. Hmm, that's interesting. Wow, really good teaching. Oh, I'm really pleased that I've learning this and you can just stay in the middle rather than oh wow look at this oh my goodness this is so great like i can get to this point where i no longer experience intense physical and mental pain oh that's feeling oh so wonderful like that's the excitement that you're not interested in that you just would like to reside in the middle but you're also not interested in being indifferent and being like ah so what the buddha said you can get rid of this mental anguish so what who cares right like that would be the other side you would like to stay in this middle where it's like oh wow this is very deep i can see how i could use this maybe i'd like to read this a couple times this week Maybe read it a few more times and really deeply understand it. This can be really helpful for me. This is where the mind's in the middle. So then, so I would then apply equanimity to it. I would apply the effort to bring myself back to the middle. Okay. Exactly. Thank you for your teacher. This is where the Buddha talks about the seven factors of enlightenment. And when you feel the mind going to this excited condition, then you apply tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are the three qualities of mind that when you feel your mind going to the excited state, you apply tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. That's what brings it to the middle. And then when you feel this sluggish condition, that's where you bring in the investigation, the energy, and the joy. And that's what springs the mind out of that sluggish, complacent condition and brings it to the middle. And what allows you to do all of this is mindfulness or awareness of mind. So when you're practicing awareness of mind and you see the mind sluggish, you kind of fine tune the mind with investigation, energy, and joy, bringing it to the middle. 
And then with mindfulness or awareness of mind, where you see the mind being excited, you then practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And now when you get the mind to reside more and more in the middle, then it will just always reside there. It won't pop out to excitement. It won't pop out to sluggishness or complacency. It'll just always reside in the middle and to get more and more used to residing that middle. I think of it like a groove, like the mind just continues to work this groove in this piece of wood. If you were just taking a piece of metal and just grinding back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, eventually that piece of metal will get grinded down into the wood. Initially, it kind of pops out and it's hard to keep that metal grinding in the wood. But over time, as the metal gets more and more used to grinding down the middle of this board, it gets deeper and deeper into this groove. And now the metal won't pop out of this groove that you've grinded into the wood. So your mind is the same way is that where you see it sluggish, you practice investigation, energy, and joy. Where you see it excited, you practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity, and you're getting the mind used to residing in the middle for longer and longer periods of time. And then it'll get to the point where it won't pop out to either side because you've worn in this groove so well that now the mind's in the middle performing optimally. It does not appear we have any more questions on this chapter, sir. All right, so let's go to the next one, which is chapter 45. Yes, let's go to Donnie to read chapter 45. Four persons found as distinct in the world. Monks, these four persons are found as distinct in the world. What four? The subdued in body, but not in mind. The unsubdued in body, but subdued in mind. He who is subdued in neither, he who is subdued in both. And how, monks, is a person subdued in mind, but not in body? In this case, a certain person makes his bed and lodging in the lonely glades and solitude of a forest, but meanwhile thinks sensual thoughts, malicious thoughts, and harmful thoughts. Thus, monks, a person is subdued in body, but not in mind. And how is a person unsubdued in body, but subdued in mind? In this case, a person does not make his bed and lodging in the lonely glades and solitude of the forest, yet meanwhile he thinks unworldly thoughts, thoughts of not malicious, not harmful. Thus, a person is unsubdued in body, but subdued in mind. And how is a person subdued neither in body nor in mind? In this case, a certain person does not make his bed and lodging in the lonely glades and solitude of a forest, Yet, meanwhile, he thinks sensual, malicious, and harmful thoughts. Thus, a person is subdued neither in body nor in mind. And how is the person subdued in both body and in mind? In this case, a person makes his bed and lodging in the lonely place and solitude of a forest, and at the same time, thinks unworthy thoughts and not malicious, not harmful. Thus, a person is subdued both in mind and in body. So these four persons are found as distinct in the world. Okay, thank you, Donnie. So it's important to understand that when the Buddha talks about four persons found existing in the world, that you don't think that this is the only four people. When he talks at different times, he'll oftentimes compare and contrast and kind of helping you to see the different ways that your mind is going to function. This isn't for you to judge other people. This is for you to understand your own mind. 
And he describes at different times four persons found that existing in the world, and he goes through all the different combinations. Here he's talking about being subdued or not subdued in body and mind. And essentially what he's getting to is he's talking about somebody who goes out into the forest and essentially is comfortable being alone. And then in doing that, also being subdued in mind is not having sensual thoughts or sensual desire, these chasing after sensual pleasures, and also not having ill will and not having harmful thoughts. So here he's talking about right intention, essentially. The wisdom of right intention is having the intention of renunciation or relinquishment, letting go, no longer have craving through the six sense bases. The intention of non-ill will or letting go of cruel and malicious thoughts and the intention of harmlessness, eliminating harmful thoughts. So the Buddha is essentially guiding you to this last one where this is what you would like to ultimately practice is being subdued by both body and in mind where you're comfortable being alone and without other people and you also don't have these constant central desires where the mind is longing and yearning through the sense bases, having these central thoughts, having these thoughts of ill will or having thoughts of harmfulness. So by getting to this point, then the mind is more liberated because oftentimes what we do is we fill up our day with being involved and in contact with other people because we're afraid to be alone. Or if we go to a restaurant to eat, we want to take other people with us. Or if we go to the mall, we want to take other people with us. We don't want to be alone. And if somebody doesn't go with us, then we're not interested in going by ourselves. So what you need to do is you're most likely not going to be able to go out into the forest alone and live for extended periods of time like they did during the lifetime of the Buddha. But instead, what you would like to do is incorporate into your practice where you're regularly doing things alone and you're completely content with that. Whether it's going to the park for a walk, whether it's going out to dinner at a restaurant by yourself, whether it's going to the mall shopping by yourself, going to a movie by yourself, going on a holiday by yourself. You need to train the mind to be completely content whether you're with people or you're without people. And you'll never know if your mind is trained to that degree if you're always around other people. So you need to find time throughout your week and throughout your month where you can just be alone, Uh, whether it's in your house, whether it's walking in a park, whether it's shopping, going to the movies, going to restaurants, things like this. And while you're alone, this is a great time for the mind to now look inward and start reflecting and start observing what thoughts are coming to mind. While you're alone, do you observe that the mind has this longing and yearning through the sense bases? Is it craving sensual pleasures? While you're alone, does the mind have this ill will or these malicious thoughts? While you're alone, do you have these harmful thoughts, being interested in harming others? So if you're observing those things, you need to continue to train the mind to not have those things. And as long as you have discontentedness in the mind, you are experiencing those things. So you will need to deeply observe the mind. And the only way you can do that is if you're alone, because if you're always around other people and you're always involved in conversations with other people, then you're not sitting with your own thoughts. And by looking at your own thoughts, observing the mind, that there's this central desire, 
there's this ill will, there's these thoughts of harm being harmful and being harmful to other beings, then you're not going to be able to know these unwholesome things exist in the mind. So therefore, you're not going to be able to eliminate them and arise the wholesome. So having right intention is having the intention to let go of central desire, to practice non-ill will or loving kindness and practice harmlessness. That is what you ultimately would like to get to where you are subdued by both body and mind, which is what the Buddha is explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, um, thank you for your, all your um, guidance. I have the opposite problem. I'm perfectly comfortable being alone. I prefer it. And I avoid sometimes going out into situations where there's lots of people. I would rather eat alone. I would rather go to a movie alone. I don't go to movies, but I would rather do any anything I can think of alone than with other people. Would it be wise for me to kind of flip this advice and make sure that I do things with other people so that I can make sure I'm not being discontented when I'm with other people? Exactly. So where you see the mind is maybe averse or it has this overwhelming preference to do one particular thing, like in your case, be alone. You would like to train the mind to also be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy in the other situations, too. So you've got to confront this situation where you know that you're completely content being alone. So now you flip it, like you say, and now you start spending time with other people in certain situations, not all the time, but in certain situations, you put the mind in those situations. And even though it might feel uncomfortable at times, you go into those situations as part of your training. And you realize that I need to train this mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the situations where I'm with other people. And this will be really beneficial for the mind. And that's where you become satisfied with what is. If you're alone, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you're with other people, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And that's how you actively train the mind. And you can start seeing that this training that the Buddha is teaching you is more than just meditation. Because oftentimes we think that our training is just in meditation. But where you observe these areas, maybe these blind spots, or maybe these areas where the mind's kind of been you know, crafty in trying to avoid interaction with people, you now say, all right, Mrs. Mind or Mr. Mind, I'm not going to let you sit over here by yourself all the time because you're liking that a whole, whole lot and you don't like going out with other people. So I'm going to put you in that situation and you're going to have to learn to be content and joyful in those situations. And that's really good training for the mind. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Sir, when we say alone, I know that especially with this pandemic, a lot of people have spent a lot of time alone. Um, but when we're talking about being alone, do we also mean without TV, social media, radio, where we don't have these things going on so that we can actually be alone with our thoughts, sir? That would be very wise because What's going to happen with the uninstructed worldling, going back to that, right, is that even though you might try to be alone, you might try to fill up your time with TV, with 
music with sensual desire. This is sensual desire. The eyes, the ears, the nose. People eat, you know, when they're lonely, they might eat as a way of getting these pleasant feelings. So that's that sensual desire that you're trying to eliminate. And what the Buddha explains is that you need to distance yourself from this. And by spending time alone and also without things like TV and Wi-Fi and Internet for longer and longer periods of time, then you get to the point where the mind can be completely content without these things. But you'll never know that you can do that and you have accomplished it as long as we fill up our time with these things. So it doesn't mean that you have to go for you know six months without Wi-Fi, although you could if you'd like to. But you should find times where you go a few minutes, a few hours, expanding that longer and longer where you're not just constantly engrossed in things to please the senses like TV, music, Wi-Fi, chatting with people online. Because if you're alone, but you're sitting there chatting on the phone to people, you're not really alone. You're still having craving to have contact with other people. So the more you strip that stuff out of your life and you observe that for two, three, four hours, you can sit there and just be completely content by yourself and with your own thoughts. That's really helpful for the mind. And then you know that that time is impermanent and it's, you know, four hours from now or three days from now or what have you, you're going to be back with people or you're going to maybe watch TV or listen to music. Then you do that and you don't do this for just one time and think like, all right, the mind's been trained. You do this consistently over a long term period of time. And each time you observe the mind in those situations. So you put the mind in those situations strip away all these central pleasures and observe how the mind functions in those situations. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear that we have any more questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So let's go to the next one, which is chapter 46. Okay. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 46. Thank you, Miranda. Dedication causes the arising of wholesome states. Monks, I know not of any other single thing of such power to cause the arising of wholesome states, if not yet arisen, or to cause the diminishing of evil and wholesome states, if already arisen, as dedication. In him who is dedicated, wholesome states, if not yet arisen, do arise, and evil and wholesome states, if arisen, do diminish. All right. Thanks, Jan. So here the Buddha talks about dedication and a previous chapter in this book, he was talking about diligence. And at other times in his teachings, he talks about all three of these together. He talks about dedication, determination and diligence and that these three things are what essentially is going to be the motivating factors to apply to help you get to enlightenment. Because anything you've ever accomplished in your life, you needed to have determination, dedication, and diligence. Why do you know how to read and write at this point in your life? Well, because at one point in your life, you didn't know how to read and write. And over a period of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, even maybe now currently, you're still learning new vocabulary words. Because of your determination, dedication, and diligence of learning how to write, learning how to read, learning the structure of language and so forth, you're now able to read, write, and communicate with people in this English language or maybe even other languages besides English. All of that 
results that you experienced in terms of developing your understanding of language came through dedication and this determination and this diligence. And it's the same thing with this path to enlightenment. If you have determination, dedication, and diligence, here specifically dedication, then as you observe the wholesome qualities in the mind that aren't yet arisen, you can now apply dedication to arising those wholesome qualities. This would be applying right effort as part of the Eightfold Path. And then when you see certain unwholesome qualities or unwholesome states in the mind that are in the mind, now you can apply dedication to eliminating those from the mind. And the Buddha is saying, okay, this is like really powerful to be able to have this determination, dedication, and diligence. Here he's just focusing on dedication, but in other places he talks about all three. So you're going to need to have this dedication to be able to successfully get to enlightenment. If there's this complacency in the mind, it's not going to be possible for you. So wherever you see complacency arise, you then turn to investigation, energy, and joy to investigate the teachings and move your practice forward. And of course, there's going to be periods of time where you take a rest, you relax, you don't have to be go, 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 go all the time. That would be craving. But you're also not interested in this complacency setting in either. So you find that middle where there's times that you rest and you take a break and you relax and you train the mind that that is productive to be able to do those things. And overall, through your consistency and your ongoing efforts, you maintain this dedication. And that's what's going to propel you forward towards enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So we'll go to the last chapter of this book, chapter 47. Yes, let's go to Alaska to read chapter 47, sir. Teachings and discipline will be your teacher. Ananda, it may be that you think the teacher's instructions have ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay, strive on untiringly. These were the Tathagatha's last words. Okay, thank you. This is the Buddha's last words. The Tathagata is the Buddha, right? So here he was talking to Ananda, which is one of his close students who was actually with him the entire 45 years of his teaching career. Ananda was his cousin. And he ordained with the Buddha and he learned with the Buddha for those 45 years. And Ananda wasn't actually enlightened by the time the Buddha actually died. So even somebody staying close to a Buddha like that, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get enlightened. He didn't get enlightened until about three months after the Buddha died. And you can see in parts of the teachings, probably the reason why is because he was attached to the Buddha. Because the Buddha told Ananda and others Three months before he was going to die, he gave him a heads up that he was going to die in three months. Uh, This helped his students to gradually let him go. And in that discourse, Ananda was pleading and begging with the Buddha not to die. So you could see that Ananda was very much attached to the Buddha. And that's what hindered his enlightenment. So here the Buddha is explaining to him, you know, once I die, 
the instruction hasn't ceased. It's not that you don't have a teacher because the teachings that he's shared over the last 45 years at his passing are going to be the the teacher. So continue to learn and practice the teachings that he talked about over the last 45 years. That's what's going to help you after he dies. And then like a true Buddha, he teaches all the way to the very end. He gives his last words, which are an actual teaching, which is the very first part of the path to enlightenment. The very first thing that you should learn as part of the path to enlightenment is the universal truth of impermanence that all conditioned things are going to change. Or here the Buddha says, I declare to you all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. What he's talking about is his own physical body, that this physical body, it arose, it changed over the course of his life, and now it's going to fade away. It's going to decay. And everybody is subject to that universal truth of impermanence. So he's ending his life with these last words, explaining the very thing that is the very first step of learning and practicing his teachings, which you need to understand the universal truth of impermanence, that things are constantly changing. And as long as the mind is craving permanence and clinging and holding on, wanting things to be permanent, then there's going to be discontentedness. So this is why Ananda's mind was shaken up in discontent when the Buddha said, hey, I'm going to die in three months, is Ananda was craving for the Buddha to be permanent. And the Buddha is explaining here, hey, I'm not permanent. But these teachings that I share with you, that's what's going to be your guide when I die. And then ultimately he says, okay, strive on untiringly, meaning continue to apply dedication, continue to apply diligence towards the attainment of enlightenment. So learning with these teachings, continuing to understand impermanence and strive on without allowing the mind to become complacent is essentially what he's saying. Questions on this? Um, it does not appear that we have any questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So that's our last chapter for this particular book. Next week, we're going to be moving into volume 10. And you can start reading those chapters. I always suggest for people to read kind of 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time. This is essentially about maybe like two of the chapters. They will take you, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes to read just two chapters. And this gives you time to kind of sit with what the Buddha taught and reflect on it and start applying it to your life. Whereas if you sat down and you read for two hours or one and a half hours straight, it's going to be hard for you to retain what you learned in that one and a half, two hour session. So if you just read 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time, then those teachings can kind of sit in the mind and you can reflect on them. You can think about them, even start applying them to your life before you read the next one or two chapters. So this is why you see in the Facebook group, I post one or two chapters from these books every day. So if you kind of do that same approach, that gradual training, like you're drip feeding the teachings into the mind, that's what you would like to do. So this next book is titled Exploring the Path to Enlightenment. It's volume 10. You can download it or you can get it from Amazon. You can also take it and go print it if you like. So we'll study all 10 of those next week in our class. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in chapter three of volume one. 
Volume 1, Chapter 3 is titled Enlightenment. What is Enlightenment? And that's in there at the very beginning of the book to help you understand what the ultimate goal is so that then you can actually more actively work towards the ultimate goal, which is enlightenment. So if you're going to travel from city A to city B, you wouldn't be able to do that and even be interested to do that if you didn't know something about city B. So you would need to know what is city B like? What am I going to see when I get there? What is there to do in that city? And now with that interest of being able to go travel to city B, once you travel there and you arrive, you'll know that you arrived because you know about the parks, you know about the buildings, what's going on there. So once you arrive to this new city, you'll know that you're actually there and you'll be able to navigate your way to that city more readily. So understanding what enlightenment is and also what enlightenment isn't is really helpful for you to navigate your way towards it. Because how could you ever get to this ultimate goal if you didn't even know what the ultimate goal was? And how would you know that you've arrived to that ultimate goal of enlightenment if you didn't know what it is? So really early on in the book, I help students to understand what is enlightenment so you can more readily navigate to it. And then once you arrive, then you'll know that you've actually experienced enlightenment. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in our third session of our four-part series on loving kindness meditation. So you're welcome to attend any of these classes, either Sunday, Wednesday, and or Saturday. So I'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.